start. Yeah. All right. Hey, everyone. And to Feminism Remixed. I am Samantha Ward. Oh, um, hold on. Olivia isn't on yet. Hold on. Okay. I'm not. No, it's it just says it's McCall and then Nikki. Yeah, I see Olivia. Wait, no. I was say, I feel like I'm on here. You are. Oh, yes. there we can go. you hear me? Let's just right. start again. I'm sure we can cut it. Yeah. yeah. If not... <laughs> She'll have a laugh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, hey, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Feminism Remix. I'm Samantha Ward. I'm Olivia Newman. I'm Nikki Quinn. And I'm McCall Aaron. Thank you guys for tuning in and welcome. Our topic today is books you didn't know you needed. And we are here to talk about why you should pick up Foot Feminism by Nikki Kendall and the Crunk Feminist Collection by Brittany Sue Cooper. Susanna M. Morris and Robin M. Boylorn. The next time you see them at the bookstore. Or if you're trying to educate yourself now, get it on Amazon. In this episode, we will be illustrating different aspects of both Hood Feminism and the Crunk Feminist Collection. We're going to analyze their strengths and weaknesses, along with how they are composed, their target audiences, and what each book appraises newly in the feminism arena. Yeah, Hood Feminism is a critical feminist text that interrogates the failings of mainstream feminist movement and gives us the necessary the necessary expertise of black women. Kendall skillfully illuminates the issues within race, class, gender, and shows us the beauty and power of anger. The Crunk Feminist Collection is derived from the Collective's blog, which published different essays between 2010 and 2015, and have since been edited into this collection. There are also other excerpts that have been added from other contributing authors. The collection of essays touches on topics ranging from intersectionality, African-American culture, patriarchy, misogyny, anti-blackness, and hip-hop feminism. All right, so like to get into the conversation, we're going to start by illuminating the strengths of each text. So we're going to start with the Crunk Feminist Collection. Yes, so um, a huge strength of the Crunk Feminist Collection is its ability to really enrich all readers, whether they're self-proclaimed feminists or not. Um, the book uses a lot of widely historical, uh, widely known historical events, references to pop culture, and also personal um, anecdotes to achieve this. So instead of focusing heavily on feminist theory, which can definitely come off as abstract to those who aren't familiar with it, the book really makes use of storytelling, which will engage any reader. It's obviously the real life examples that are able to get their points across. Yeah, wow, that must be an amazing read, kind of similar to Hood Feminism. Um, to go into the strengths of her friends, and Kendall really shows through how inclusive and thoughtful she is that she touches on multiple impactful issues. Mainstream feminism does not really focus on many topics that involve low-income women of color and trans women. But throughout his feminism, the author uses personal anecdotes to connect to each issue, whether it be education, hypersexualization, race, and poverty, and many other important problems. Yeah, to go along with that, Michelle, like Kendall really like pushes how mainstream feminism ignores basic needs as an issue. Um, in the introduction, she says, quote, we rarely talk about basic needs as a feminist issue. Food insecurity and access to quality education, safe neighborhoods, a living wage, and medical care are all feminist issues. And that's on page eight of the intro. She like goes into the book by like splitting each chapter and like the way she splits them, they really hit on these topics and they show how each should be and need to be looked at as feminist issues. 
and they have intersectionality being like at the center of these arguments. Mm -hmm. So something that we believe that really contributes to the strengths of these books is the fact that each book has personal stories that touch on, you know, relationships between education and poverty and how as an institution, the educational system fosters the school to prison pipeline that disproportionately affects black students. And both books also mention the stories relating to pregnancy and the struggles women face when confronted with issues relating to it. So to begin on the stories, we're going to talk a little bit about um, education and poverty and the relationship between the two. Yeah, so to go into the education, like, a story that really stood out to me in Hood Feminism was of a boy named Dion. So he wasn't, he didn't do very well in school and he became a drug dealer, but Kendall describes him as always usually being happy. And the author says that, quote, his mom wasn't around much, his grandmother got sick, and he and his sister needed to eat. The rent needed to be paid. The heat needed to stay on. I don't know exactly when he started selling drugs. I do know that at some point his family needed the money he was bringing in more than they needed to keep him on the straight and narrow. And she says that on page 190. So, like, the story of Dion really kind of puts everything into perspective. What else, like, is he supposed to do in that situation? Kendall says that he embraced the streets because they had embraced him when he needed help. And that was on page 90. Or 191. Uh, um, that also that really stood out to me, too. Like we said earlier in Hood Feminism, the author uses personal anecdotes to really make the issues in the novel that she mentions that come, really come to life. But when we take into account education in inner cities, there are many situations that people need to consider when they see children engaged in illegal activity. Um, she mentions that many of her students her age were, quote, the ones responsible for making sure that there was food in the fridge or the gas bill got paid. That responsibility might fall on their shoulders in fifth or tenth grade or simply have something that they've always had to have felt was necessary. And that was on page 189. Also, Kendall talks about, on page 190, about how Kaczynski, the 99% black school that she and Dion went to, was, quote, a segregated school, but we didn't really know that, and you can't miss what you never had, so I can't say that any of us really knew what we lacked. Um, these students were kicked out of class for things like wearing the wrong colored shoes or something. Oh, wow. Yeah, like, speaking from my personal experience of going to a majority white private school, Stuff like that like, didn't happen and would never happen, so that really highlights how it's really a race issue. Um, Kendall says that, quote, the adults around you teach you that they value obedience over education, and if they don't value you or your future, why should you? And that was on page 195. Uh, so like, this also goes into the idea of safety in schools, which generally people would think of safety as being the presence of cops. Yeah, people don't see how the presence of cops in school like Kaczynski being 99% black or any school really with a significant number of black people disproportionately allows for the criminalization of black students. Kendall talks about how the idea of safety in schools needs to be redefined. And on page 200, she writes, quote, students need schools and politicians to expand the definition of safety to include more school-based counselors, social workers, nurses, and after-school weekend and summer programs, and that, um, end quote, which means to me, not just more cops. Uh, <laughs> a few lines later, she writes, quote, there's no safety in being profiled or being surveilled and harassed in a place that should be about opportunities and not total obedience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so another quote that goes along with that is, when home isn't safe, school isn't safe, and the streets aren't safe, 
then what kid can focus on school to the exclusion of danger? And that was on page 19. So like, how are inner city children of color supposed to be able to get themselves like out of their situation? Like people blame them and they shame them for using or selling drugs like to make money and such. But like in many cases, they have no choice but to go to these extreme lengths to provide for themselves because they also have to provide for their families. Like no one is truly looking out for these children. So they end up looking out for themselves and providing for themselves and their families. Yes, 100%. And going along with that, no one is truly looking out for these children, even in the schools. Um, in the current feminist collection, during the section called uh, Reneging on the Promises, Justice for Trayvon, Brittany Cooper talks about how during the aftermath of Trayvon Martin's passing, many articles mention that he had been expelled that week. And Cooper, you know, reminds us that this was probably to suggest that um, he was a disciplinary problem and that he was some kid that didn't have his head on straight, you know, kind of just unjustifiably stereotyping him. Yeah, and Cooper does a great job relating this to a personal story of hers. She reminds us that Trayvon wasn't an isolated example and that so many Black students are automatically stereotyped as unruly students that need to be disciplined. Um, So in her personal story, she talks about how while she taught reading at a public school in D.C., four Black students of hers were expelled under zero tolerance policies. And three of these students were expelled solely for the fact that they failed to report that one of their classmates was selling drugs. And Cooper reminds us that Black students are suspended 46% more than all other students and account for 39% of expulsions even though they only make up 18% of the school system. So we can see how Black students are more disproportionately disciplined than other students. And through these zero-tolerance policies, the educational system has maintained the school-to-prison pipeline by unjustifiably expelling these students. Yeah, and you know, next we are going to talk about um, some personal stories from each book that mention issues surrounding pregnancy. And how, long story short, women cannot win in general when it comes to pertaining to, or issues pertaining to their own reproductive health. Yeah, so in the Crunk Feminist Collection, there's a story called Fish Dreams by Robin M. Boylorn. This is a personal story that touches on how Black women are judged for becoming pregnant while young and how family reinforces these values. Her family members always made it known to her that she would be a disappointment if she were to get pregnant young. And while having a child at a young age is looked down upon, not having children at all is as well. And in Fish Dreams, Robin and Boylorn discusses how in the earlier years of her life, not having a child was seen as an accomplishment. While as she started to get older, it began to feel like it was a failure that she didn't have children because people had looked at her as if she had sacrificed motherhood for her career and her professional life. And also in um, Inconceivable Black Fertility by Aisha Durham, um, she talked about the fear of, or how the fear of teen pregnancy and myths around Black women's hypersexuality and hyperfertility made a diagnosis of infertility a lot harder for her to confront. Um, Being a Black woman uh, warned all her life about the dangers of teen pregnancy. The fact that she could be infertile just never crossed her mind. Yeah, like, definitely. I remember, like, this kind of goes into, like, infant mortality, like, and stuff. And so I remember hearing about how, like, when a white woman has a baby, the first questions are always like, oh, like, is it a boy or a girl? But for black women, the first question is most likely, how much does it weigh? Since black women, like, they have, like, their children have higher rates of infant mortality. 
And so like Kimball goes into this and relates it to how his issues like this and abortion are commonly seen as feminist issues, but like basic health care is not. Yeah, um, and also in, in Hood Feminism, the author vulnerably writes about her miscarriages that resulted in an unwanted backlash. She said, quote, I would like to be able to say that feminist, but it wasn't my experience. Although mainstream feminists paid lip service to the idea that I deserve support, and they made, mostly made demands. They wanted me to speak at rallies, to testify, to give them copies of my medical records. That was on page 218. They exploited her situation and did not show her the attentive care that she really needed in her vulnerable state. Yeah, that's, yeah. Okay, so now we're gonna go into the differences in like tone and word choice within the text. And to start off, I'm gonna elaborate on the overall tone use in feminism. So, like, throughout the novel, her tone is stern and impassioned, but there's a, like, well-deserved ounce of anger. Like, because white feminists have completely left Black women out of their efforts until very recently. And even though they may claim to, like, support the issues touched upon in the book, in reality, they're really not as concerned with the movement outside of their own wants and needs. Yeah, um, completely agree. In the very first chapter on page six, Kendall writes, quote, there's nothing feminist about having so many resources at your fingertips and choosing to be ignorant. Nothing empowering or enlightening in deciding that intent trumps impact, especially when the consequences aren't going to be experienced by you, but will be experienced by someone from a marginalized community. The author's word choice um, is easy to digest and understandable, but clearly still very eloquently written. Um, she was known as books in her, sc- in her school, and her background with literature really showed throughout her writing. Most of the book felt like it was an educational conversation that really informed the reader of important intersexual issues. Yeah, exactly. You can definitely see like how educated and passionate Kendall is through her writing. And it's definitely worded in a way that is informative and powerful, yet it's easy to digest and understand. Her anger and passion like to me literally like poured out of the pages and it really caused the reader to like check their privilege. Uh, she ends each chapter by saying things like, we as a movement must do this, and we need to fix and incorporate this. And I found that really, I thought that was really important because she really just summed up the main thoughts of each section and tied them up with a perfect little bow. And so that helped like my thoughts for like this book, like really differing from common feminist and academic literature, because I would say like, she's not consciously trying to make every point sound super academic and complicated and theoretical. Kendall really just straight up says what she wants to address, tells it as it is, and then she goes and explains it. Yeah. I, I love that, because also crunk feminism is pretty much the same. Um, the tone of the crunk feminist collection is super casual, but very powerful. I think the word raw is a very accurate description. Um, one quote that really stuck out to me was on page 12 in the gender fuck the patriar- patriarchy section, um, the collective wrote, Our essays on gender demonstrate resistance and refusal to comply with traditional, irrational, and patriarchal bullshit. Fuck the patriarchy. Um, It's so obvious that these authors are so unapologetic throughout, and I think that this really helped get their points across. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of emotion throughout the entire book. It doesn't feel like you're reading a textbook about women's and gender studies, which at times academic texts can definitely be really helpful. But we all know that textbooks and theory reading can often be really sterile. 
But with this book, the vibe that you get is really intimate and it feels like you're sitting down with women in your family, women that you're friends with, women that you love, and you're hearing them passionately tell you about their experiences and their beliefs and why they're valid and should be heard. Yes, 100%. And I think something that really helped with the powerful tone is the word choice. Um, I mean, as you just heard with the quote I read, um, the Crunk Feminist Collection used, or the collective used a really nice blend of eloquent, but also brash language. There was a very nice juxtaposition between both throughout the entire book. Um, using, you know, nice academic words, but also curse words and slang. And we think that this really communicated the ideas that all of them were trying to present in a very personable, intimate, and relatable manner. Yeah, the Crunk Feminist Collection also uses short stories from multiple authors, and most of these are blog posts from collective website but there's also other stories from other writers and each excerpt is only a few pages long so there's so much variability within the book and in only 10 pages you can cover like three different topics that are all related to each other and it's so packed with information that you really feel like you got something out of it in such a short amount yes yes um something that we also want to get into is the target audiences which we think is very important when understanding what were these authors trying to really get across? So for the fun, for the Crunk Feminist Collection, um, we believe that the target audience um, were people, especially Black women, who just weren't well-versed in feminism, who haven't dipped their toes into it, or who just rejected feminism altogether. Um, what we think makes us believe this is the fact that um, there's so much storytelling throughout the book. There's a lot of real-life historical events mentioned that so many readers could reference, like Serena Williams' experiences on the tennis court, the slang of Trayvon Martin, and Brie Newsom climbing a a flagpole and ripping the Confederate flag off of it after the South Charleston Church Massacre. Um, This collection is such a wonderful starting point for new feminists to come up, to get together, and to get passionate. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I think Something else that makes us think that the target audience is Black women particularly is the fact that many of the excerpts focus on struggles that are particular to Black women and amplify them. Because historically, Black women, their experiences, their struggles, and their needs have not been in political, private, and feminist spheres. Whether it's in public, between relationships with family members or others, or even in socially progressive movements, Black women have never really been given the spotlight. I completely agree with you, Nikki. I really like what you guys had to say about Become Feminist. Um, I like how it was written for Black women. For her feminism, as I was reading it, I personally believe that it was not for people that the book was written about, if that makes sense. Um, this novel was clearly written for people outside of the situation and not necessarily directed at women in marginalized communities. Um, hood feminism really checks the privilege of mainstream feminism, taints their vision of the movement in a very educational way. Yeah, like really. And in the introduction, Kendall says, quote, so many feminist texts were clearly written about girls like me instead of girls, instead of by girls like me. And that was on page seven. And so she was like, screw it. Like, I'm going to do it. (laughs) And so like when reading it, I felt as though like you can see it as being directed towards like the newer generation of feminists, like those who are ready and willing to fight for the issues that she lays out. But then like if you look at it through another way, 
like I feel like white mainstream feminists like should read it like they mm-hmm. totally would hate it and probably would hide behind their privilege and all but I feel like if you look at it you can see how Kendall writes in a way that makes me think she's also pointing it like towards them and then there's also if you look at it you can kind of see as though it could be written a little bit for marginalized groups like it's giving them words for their experiences that they may not have had words for and so saying all this like nothing is perfect even these amazing books that we're discussing with (laughs) y'all we definitely have a few critiques for each and so we're going to go into that next yeah so something that i think would have really helped the crunk feminist collection is if each passage um was dated from when the blog post was originally published um each passage is written in the present tense however it each passage also references different events anywhere from like the 80s to the early 2000s yeah and i think also adding a paragraph of cultural con- co- cultural context as to what the writer was writing in response to would have helped illuminate readers even more to the scope of the topics that they were discussing yeah, 100%. And I think also footnotes um, from the sources originally linked in the blog would have been super nice too, because that would have given readers a chance to find other articles to supplement their learning and to just really diversify their experience and, you know, enrich, enrich their knowledge more. Yeah, okay. So, like, to go into hood feminism, like, I thought as though Kendall maybe could have given a little bit more, like, historical context and examples for some of the topics, because she makes a lot of great, like, modern day connections and examples which like is great for me being a 19 year old college student. (laughs) But like if she wanted older generations of mainstream feminists to be like a part of the target audience, maybe a couple more like historical past contexts like that could be included that like they could relate to more and that could like connect them with the modern issues. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think my biggest issue with hood feminism is how she barely mentions womanism, which is kind of basically the same concept as her book. Um, this term was coined by Alice Walker, and there are many women who consider themselves as part of the womanism like movement, and because the feminist movement left them out, and perhaps she didn't include this information because it was not intended for her audience, and also, understandably so, feminism is just given much more attention than womanism, but I still believe it was wrong to kind of disregard all of the work that Black women poured into womanism. Um, because they felt the exact same way as her, and she kind of mentioned it once at the beginning of the book. So. Um, and also, after discussing all these different topics, we want to talk about what we think each of these books is really trying to get people to think critically about when it comes to feminism. Yeah, so we believe that the Crunk Feminist Collection is really helping women, along with anyone else willing to become enlightened, to appraise feminism newly. The collection is passionately written, filled with emotion and personal, intimate, and sometimes vulnerable and dark stories that a variety of readers can relate to. This collection is a great way to convince someone to be a feminist, an intersectional one that thinks critically about any and everything they come across during their lifetime. I absolutely love that, Nikki. I can say hood feminism has a very similar impact on people. I think this author really helps people understand the different issues that feminism should be focusing on. There are so many problems and hardships that black women face where the responsibility to help them is prone to racial organizations and other movements. But um, the author really reveals her experience with these issues and really shows the reader how these stories can really affect someone and their sense of self. Yeah, like really both of these amazing books are full of fierce passion 
and intersectional views on issues that really should and need to be seen as feminist issues. And it critiques aspects of today's mainstream feminism movement. So overall, I would say these books are definitely a must read for all feminists and all would-be feminists, like no matter what their background is. Thank you guys so much for listening to us talk about these <laughs> books. Um, thank you so much for tuning in. After reading Hood Feminism, I learned so much valuable information about issues that I've always wanted to expand my knowledge about. I found it extremely powerful to read this novel because the many issues that feminisms, there's so many issues that feminism should be focusing on. And if you would like to grow your own opinion and really expose yourself to the powerful truth about race and feminism, make sure to pick these books up and you will not regret it. Yes, thank y'all so much. Like, I'd 10 out of 10 would recommend <laughs> reading Hood Feminism and the Crunk Feminist yeah. Collection. Like, they really opened my eyes to so many issues that are overlooked by mainstream feminism and explain thoroughly why they should be seen as such. And, like, don't shy away from buying it because you aren't educated in feminist theory, Mm -hmm. because her passion and eloquent writing is really, like, comprehensible and easy to digest, but it's also super informative. Yeah, and I think that the Kronk Feminist Collection's tone and unique word choice really made this book so different from many feminist writings I have read before. And... This is the perfect book for new feminists or those who are wanting to read something different from the usual scholarly feminist writings. Mm-hmm, 100%. Yeah. And for me, what I really loved about the Chrome Feminist Collection was that it was split up into so many different essays. You know, you did not have to read the book liner- linearly. Um, you could jump to any section and start there. It was like watching random episodes of The Office. I also loved how intimate and personable it is. Um, This, along with the fact that it was broken up into so many sections, really helped keep me interested. Um, So a final point that we want to make is that all of us consider ourselves feminists. And we would like to say that we're very up-to-date on the movement. But even after reading these two books, we all realize that we don't know everything. And that can be said for anyone, okay? There's always new information to learn because there's always new perspectives that need to be heard. And both Hood Feminism and the Crunk Feminist Collection really helped broaden our perspectives and check our privilege. So we really hope that y'all pick out these two books the next time y'all are in the bookstore. And once again, we just want to say thank y'all so much for tuning in to Feminism Remix. And we'll see y'all next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.